Together with Tony, Frederica, Takayuki, Mireille and Selma, we recently published the first textbook on human-robot interaction through Cambridge University Press. I will link the book in the description. While this is an excellent book, it is not the topic of this podcast. Instead, we will focus on an insight that occurred to us when we prepared a timeline of social robots for the book. An observation that either emphasizes the urgent need for our book or its complete irrelevance. The ugly truth is that almost all social robots failed in the market. Our book had become an obituary. Why do almost all social robots fail? Hey there. Oh, that's Jibo right there. He's uh, speaking up. This is the Human Robot Interaction Podcast. I'm your host, Christoph Bartnack. Many startup companies created social robots and tried to sell them to consumers. This includes, for example, the Keepon, Cosmo and Pleo robots. Startup companies are often risky endeavors and we would expect many of them to fail. But even large international companies that already had a strong track record in industrial robots failed to bring their social robots to the consumer market. This includes NEC's Papero, Mitsubishi's Wakamaru and Bosch's Kuri robot. While some were sold to researchers, they never matured to products that could be sold to consumers. The only exception is probably Sony's robotic dog, Aibo. One of the most spectacular social robot firework has been the Jibo robot, and we will use it for a case study on the difficulties of creating and selling a social robot. Jibo is such an interesting example because the Jibo company seemed to have done everything right. They had extremely qualified experts, attracted millions of dollars of investment funding and delivered the robot to their customers. Still, in 2018, the Jibu company closed its doors. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The story of Jibo starts with Professor Cynthia Brazel of the MIT. She was one of the first researchers in the field of human-robot interaction and for her PhD thesis she developed the Kismet robot. She published her thesis in 2000 and based on it the book Designing Sociable Robots. Kismet had always been a research platform and it eventually retired to the MIT Museum, where it was on display until 2018. Cynthia authored many articles about social robots, and she's widely acknowledged as a leading researcher in the field. My request for an interview with Cynthia remained unanswered. Many journalists had similar experiences with her, and hence we have to put the pieces of the puzzle together ourselves. In 2014, 
Cynthia launched a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo to create the Jiba robot. The campaign raised more than 3 million US dollars. But that was only the beginning. During the next couple of years, several venture capitalists injected another 60 million US dollars. It took the Jibo company nearly four years to develop and ship its robot. For 899 US dollars, Jibo could have been yours. The Time magazine put the Jibo robot onto its cover and crowned it one of the best inventions of 2017. The Jibo company did everything right. They had the people, the money and the publicity. Here's an excerpt from their promotion video. What if technology actually treated you like a human being? What if technology helped you to feel closer to the ones you love? What if technology helped you like a partner rather than simply being a tool? That's what Jibo's about. That's why I created this company. And I've got the right team to do it. People with a proven track record of bringing innovative technologies and exciting content to market. But now we need your help to build Jibo, to bring it to the world, and to grow the community. Let's work together to make Jibo truly great. And together, we can humanize technology. Cynthia dedicated her HRI conference keynote to Jibo, and she spoke at several other events about the robot. This next wave of computing, which I think is really going to be around emotion. I think motion is the next wave, this humanized, high-touch engagement with technology. I think it's really the next wave, and that's Jibo's like the first of its kind to bring on that whole new humanized way of relating and experiencing technology. The reviews the robot received, however, were sobering. Lena's Tech Tips had backed the Indiegogo campaign and were one of the first to review the robot. Now, for my part, it was pretty obvious that Jibo was too ambitious to be anything but an enormous belly flop onto a bed of hot coals. But coming off of the success of my then recent flaying of the Brunton hydrogen reactor, I was looking for a way to up the ante. I was looking for something even dumber to roast. So I bought one. Three and a half years later, my very own Jibo finally showed up. Was it worth the wait? Was it worth 900 US dollars? Of course not. Don't be a Jibo. In the time it took the Jibo company to build and promote its robot, other major tech companies had developed voice-based agent systems that run on smart speakers, such as Amazon's Echo or Google's home speakers. Because Jibo is hey, much Lindsay. like It's a the, pleasure uh, to hear your voice. Echo Dot. Uh, so it has what I call web smartness. You ask it a question and it'll go out and uh, look for some kind of answer on the web. And it can do things like uh, add numbers, uh, give definitions of words off the shelf. Once the novelty wears off, uh, you realize that it's sort of a fancy Echo Dot, but for much more money. The Echo in the Google Home is way, way uh, more advanced than Jibo right now. Voice assistants also arrived on smartphones. You can talk to Siri, Bixby and others. Although this does not always work perfectly. Here's Gagnon, Matthew Lintz, Sonny Schroeder and Brett Stop. Rice. 
To see a long list, it off. take a look at the Alexa Echo. app. Stop. Uh, sorry. So why would you buy a Jibo robot if all its functions could already be accomplished with a phone in your pocket? But the fact is, although somehow time missed this, Wrong. he's almost completely useless, especially when you consider the pitch from the original crowdfunding video. I mean, yes, he does have some smart home functionality thanks to if this then that integration, but it's very basic and yes, in theory, his abilities could expand with over-the-air updates and a developer SDK that's coming out in the new year. But honestly, what kind of developers would be stupid enough to invest their time in a platform with such a small user base when there are an estimated 20 million Amazon Echo devices out there with ALEXA? Cynthia had argued in her 2015 Web Summit keynote that People seem to be doing better with these social robots, again, with these other kind of uh, more traditional screen-based interventions. So what's the new story then for robots? You know, we think about robots today still, the value proposition often centers around being this sort of physical work technology. But we've been able to see through these studies and more, there's actually this aspect of the humanized engagement is kind of the, the killer skill. In an IEEE Spectrum interview, Cynthia explained that We'd asked them explicitly, what's the difference between Jibo and, and a tablet computer? And they, you know, they used, they owned and had tablet computers. And I said, well, Jibo. Jibo fits in like family. Jibo's part of the family. Okay. Jibo might not have fulfilled all the expectations it raised. Maybe it did not fit into our families. But was it completely useless? Several researchers, museums, and medical practitioners had purchased Jibo. After all, it could be programmed to exhibit specific behaviors and animations, which could be useful. I've actually done three experiments with Jibo, one at a museum to compare Jibo with the now robot, and one at a children's hospital to see if uh, kids on the autism spectrum even cared about Jibo. And in that experiment, we had four other robots also. So we had five robots total, including Jibo. And then the third one was at an art therapy business, a small business. And we tried to do something with Jibo to compare, I mean, to combine or integrate art therapy, uh, music therapy, and robot therapy. That third experiment was a failure only because the very first day, the first session, a kiddo knocked Jibo off the table and it stopped working. This is Professor Lundy Lewis from the Southern New Hampshire University. Did you program Jibo for your research? The experiments, I programmed Jibo. In fact, I had to program Jibo for, the, for that third experiment. And the programming language is a scratch-like language. It worked nicely. I had to do some uh, integration with, with some more technologies for the third experiment, the integrated therapy experiment, because Jibo is not good with pitch, that is, doesn't know how to do pitch, so I couldn't program it to uh, sing a melody, for example, so I had to use other software for that. How well did Jibo work for your purpose? For the research platform, there should be some two improvements. One is this. The dot, for example, can be programmed with new knowledge. That's good. You can program it. It's the only voice technology that I think 
it can be programmed. And with Jibo, you can program it also, but you can't use those two kinds of knowledge side by side. It would be wonderful, wonderful if, you, if one could do that. So it should be improved in that way. And with the programming language, that's pretty good. I don't mind programming in uh, Scratch. I mean, it's not Python or anything like that. But as long as it has the usual constructs so that you can implement knowledge in different kinds of AI, uh, that would be great. But the problem is that there's some uh, bugs in the um, programming language for Jibo that are serious. How well do you think Jibo would work for general consumers? Uh, I might not be right, but I don't think that for the general consumer, Jibo is that good. For adults, I think that Jibo evolves into something like a party trick. And, but it's very, very good at a party trick. How would Jibo need to be changed to be more useful for researchers or consumers? So somebody needs to make another pass over the uh, programming language to improve it. For example, lists are very important in programming a robot. You can do some cool things easily with a list, uh, but you can't, lists are not functional uh, in Jibo. And I'm sure that's a bug. Why do so many social robots fail in the market? I think that the ones that failed are come to be viewed as expensive toys. Jibo compared to the dot is an example. People think of Jibo as an expensive toy. Jibo was discontinued in 2018, only one year after sales had started. The Jibo company was shut down and the Boston office closed. SQN Venture Partners purchased the IP and Jibo seemed to have reached the end of its short life. Amru Najjar from the University of Luxembourg investigated the fate of not only Jibo, but also of the robots mentioned earlier, such as Pleo, Cosmo and Kuri. Amro, why do most social robots fail in the market? We have a contradicting expectations. For instance, you have the first of all the user. The user's expectations are mainly driven by what the user sees in movies and what uh, they see in advertisements. Along the years, seen uh, movies in with robots, and we do have a, a high desire having robots in our life, intelligent robots that can make uh, our life uh, easier. No? I see that this is something that for a lot of companies and for a lot of us, this is a desire as well. Yeah. I'm Tomas Konchan and I'm uh, leading the Jibo initiative inside Entity Disruption. The expectations can be also driven by the how the robot looks. So if the robot is a humanoid, the user tend to think that the robot is easily cap capable of performing those tasks that a human are very comfortable and uh, easy to do. For instance, activity recognition and speech recognition. But this is actually an expectation gap because when the user interacts with a robot, it's mostly the case that speech recognition is not perfect. So that's a serious expectation gap and a serious problem generated by false expectations. We're talking about the robot that learns in an open-ended manner. And if you look even at Turing's early paper about the evolution of AI, it's clearly that progressive step-by-step -step learning, which is the way which is going to make the, the biggest difference. 
And for doing this, it's much better to start with a dog-like system because many people recognize I mean, the intelligence of animals and they live with cats and dogs and manage to develop very interesting, uh, complex relations. And they know how successful and efficient they may be dogs in certain situations, especially because they're based on other type of senses. So, so all this makes you in a state of mind, not because it's less powerful than a human or a child, but because it's actually create the right expectation, an expectation of a different entity that is living in a different world because it perceives the world through different type of sensors and which is developing new behaviors which are readable but which are definitely not human. So I always thought it was extremely smart for Sony to have started with a dog robot and I'm still thinking this is the way to go and that if you want to make a, a small child robot or whatever you, you end up always in pretending a toy-like system. So I'm Frederick Kaplan. I'm a professor at the uh, Ecole Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne, EPFL. Another kind of expectation is the researcher expe expectations. Most of new startups, like uh, robot startups, are created by researchers from the university. And university atmosphere or environment is quite different than the business environment in which you need to run your startup. And in this case, if you look at university, university atmosphere, the main expectations or the main goals are typically publications, visibility, tackling new uh, kind of problems. But when we move from this ecosystem of the university to uh, industry, the, it's, it's a totally different story. The researchers who used to be successful in the university need to now to tackle a new set of challenges r related to running their startup. And in most of the cases, they lack the uh, entrepreneurial background and the training. Chibo is not the first robot that was put to rest in the public eye. Sony had sold its robotic dog Eibel as of 1999 and despite the protests of many fans, Aibo was discontinued in 2006. Eleven years later, Sony decided to restart its Aibo line of robots and brought it back to the market in 2018. I talked with Professor Frederick Kaplan of EPFL about his experience with the Aibo robot. Frederick, do you own an Aibo robot? Yeah, I still have uh, one Ibo from uh, uh, my research at Sony. Uh, I'm still using it from time to time, especially to do demonstration. And it's actually funny because when you show that to people, they really think it's the future. Although, I mean, that Ibo is uh, almost a 15 year old. That's, I think, quite interesting about that particular pieces of technology. I mean, that it doesn't seem outdated by any means. On the contrary, it seems futuristic, although it's actually was born at a time where, you know, the internet was almost just starting. Uh, the web was, was booming, but nothing like what we have now. What was your role in the Aibo project? Why was a lab in France involved in the development of a Japanese dog robot? I think there was 98. Masaho Fujita 
which was leading the, the development of a new project, came to, to Paris. So I was a researcher at the Sony Computer Science Lab in Paris, which was the only fundamental research unit outside Japan. So the really was idea of that laboratory was to explore horizons that were not explored by the product team. And uh, he came, he showed uh, a very early stage prototype of the robot. I think it was the Mutant version in which you had almost um, no design, but it was so lively, so impressive in the way it was moving that it really triggered our imagination. And uh, Luke Steele, my boss, uh, decided that I should be the person trying to bring one of those prototypes to Paris so that we could potentially explore a new way of doing artificial intelligence uh, communication with the robot. I went to, to Japan and it was kind of interesting element because I, I joined the, the, the team of engineers that were developing the successive prototypes. And it was quite hard to actually enter into it because it was all built on another operating system, which was the Aperios operating system, the Sony operating system that Sony had developed for other purposes and which was reused for, for Ivo at that moment. And so little by little sitting around and uh, trying to ask about uh, how the things were functioning, I got enough knowledge to be capable of bringing back one of the of the prototype to uh, to Paris, and we started uh, developing some AI for the robot uh, in various directions. First, in terms of communication, teaching new word to the robot, and then progressively to other dimensions like curiosity, artificial curiosity, lifelong learning, and we continued till two thousand six, even beyond, progressively showing the potential of the robot and interacting quite closely with with the Japanese team, which were making well, the product itself. Uh, and all the hardware part. How many Ibo robots were sold? So that's, I don't have the exact figures. I think more or less is 200,000. Who used the Ibo robot and for what purpose? Well, you had a lot of early adopters, quite varied, essentially future enthusiastic people, you know, that wanted to have a, another way of life. It was like uh, making an experiment of some sort. Uh, the robot was quite expensive. It was like a computer plus the motor. So there was no way it would have been really a toy. It was a piece of luxury in some way. But but some people were extremely excited to be among the first to be part of that, you know, new kind of humanity living with robots. What was the key to success for Ibo? So for doing this, what you must understand is that so we were a research lab. There were the, the, the product development labs, but most of the effort and the cost comes actually from the sales. In the creation of Sony Entertainment robots was something quite important uh, in the sense that you had uh, there were offices in different places of the world. You had all the chain of people um, organizing events, uh, selling the products, uh, doing the distribution, and so on and so forth. And that makes a big difference between companies that, you know, were developing prototypes or showing demonstration, but didn't go to reach customers and Sony that actually did it. They made all possible uh, effort to consider it as the new PlayStation, if you want. And paradoxically, one of the issues was that the other company, which were kind of following, did not really follow. I mean, Sony arrived with a full-fledged product line and, and, and distribution channels and, and ways uh, and understanding where to sell it, etc., etc. And the hope would have been that there would have been a real Honda robot there or maybe a Microsoft robot or whatever, so that it would really create a market. That did not happen for maybe for various reasons you can ask ourselves, but that was one of the main moments of, I would say, history bifurcation. But if 200,000 
eyeball robots were sold, that in itself could be a financial viable business. You have to compare that with PlayStation. You have to compare with the real market driving um, lines of products. Uh, one of the things which was obviously extremely difficult for for robot and which is still is the price of the motor is all the computer they get cheaper, the camera they get cheaper, and of course with uh, now smartphones and all this, this has gone cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. But motors and high quality motors like the one you need for, for a robot like this, all the mechanics are good. These are elements which did not benefit yet from an economy of scale. And so it's quite difficult to push the price back. How was Ibo different from other unsuccessful social robots? Well, my feeling is that there's nothing matching Ibo really in the level of design the robot had, the level of of complexity it had in, in the way it would actually behave uh, and the overall pleasantness of its everyday interaction. The, the key idea was that it would change significantly over time. Uh, that some, was something that was really pioneered in the research lab that made it to the product to some extent. In particular, I mean, that key idea of curiosity, I mean, the fact that the robot would be capable of understanding in its environment what are the next thing he has to learn. Basically, having mastered a particular type of object, being bored about that object and going to something else. And there were really two types of schools following this. Some which were viewing that as a scripted evolution, almost like written. You would have some behaviors unlocked after a moment of time, so it was essentially just a simulation, if you want, and, uh, and a view in which the interaction really counted, and that means that the time you would have spent with that robot would make the difference, not because you unlock a new level of the robot, but because your robot is capable of doing things that no other robot is capable of doing. And, and that aspect is, is absolutely crucial and still is to some extent. And Ivo has permitted to, to develop the first glimpse of that research, which since then has, has skyrocketed. I mean, there are many, many research now in the world which are following some of the principles we, we actually um, design for Ivo in, in that respect. I used to say that the challenge in terms of product development or, or ambition uh, we were doing at, the, at Sony was that if I would come and offer you a new hi-fi, you would just say, okay, um, I have a brand new Sony Hi-Fi and I get rid of, of the ancient Hi-Fi you have. And you would probably say yes, because it's essentially better in many ways. We want to reach a stage that if the new eyeball is coming, you don't want the new eyeball because you want the ancient eyeball in which you've been spending so much time in the actual uh, interaction with it. And if you guarantee that it's really that interaction that has changed the behavior and it's not a simulation, it's not something that you just unlock a level, then you have created a completely different value proposition. It's ambitious and, and it's still there, but once this would be realized in a very efficient way in practice with varieties of repertoire behaviors, which are as exciting as what an actual living entity can do, I think it's, it's a brand new um, type of object that may come into the home with that principle. Why was Ibo discontinued in 2006? In 2005, 2006, it became clearer that there were no real engagement that the, of the big players in the field. There were some prototypes, there were other things, but again, Microsoft, Apple, all these ones, they were not creating new robots. I mean, if you compare to what's happening to virtual reality now, 
situation is a bit different when you have Facebook investing very large amount in the domain, when you, you, you guess that very probably Apple is going to go and do this or that. You have a moment where you think this is really going to make a difference. So that was a situation in 2000, 2005, 2006. There were more the confirmation that this was not happening. There were change in uh, in Sony directions. Uh, for the first time in the history of the company, it's an American director that, that arrived, and he, he made a, non, a series of, of decisions which were based on more rationality and and, and going into core products and, and cutting a lot of uh, things that may have seemed extravagant. They were playing a role in the image, but not necessarily bringing back direct important revenue. Of course, history, economic history will tell whether that was a good decision or not, and whether Sony since 2006 has, doing, has done better than it was doing before. It's a complex, visa complex decision. So, so there was that, that moment of cutting the product line. Again, beating Sony was the only one really investing the market. In order to understand what happened, we just need to check out when did they stop their earlier project. And it was in 2006. This was a time uh, when the new and current wave of AI has not emerged yet which means uh, deep learning and big data and all of their uh, all their applications were not widespread yet. So AI was not yet the hype. Why was Ibo restarted in 2018? Well, there was a clear um, breakthrough in 2014 and then in the coming years with the arrival of deep learning techniques. Just to give you an example, I think in the year 2000 or 2001, I spent six months teaching Ibo the difference between a, a green cucumber and a red tomato. You had, you had these two toys for, for the dogs, and I was repeating under different lighting conditions, I mean, uh, teaching the, the robots how to, to name the, these two objects properly. It took me six months to, to, to get proper results. Uh, we're working in the real world scenario, etc., etc. Uh, with the arrival of the deep learning revolution, things changed a lot. First, and many of these problems got cracked. And now uh, object recognition is not really an issue anymore. And more importantly, we could have uh, AI in the cloud. That means that many of the issues of having a powerful computer capable of responding fast, uh, carrying all the, the complex items in, in the robot were not anymore uh, necessary. You could just have the robot connected to uh, an IBO cloud and, and on that basis, get a very powerful AI-driven robot. And that, of course, made a difference. This means that you only need, to some extent, to make now the robot is still cheaper and, and you could go on. That's, I would say, absolutely right in some way. The issue uh, is, in that respect, not in the product, really, which absolutely even more powerful than before and, and, and more interesting, is, again, the fact that Sony may still be alone in having that product out. It's, it's a kind of, uh, of issue. Again, if that is not considered seriously by the other big players in the field, you do not create places to sell the robot, the, the, the right position in the department store, the right magazine to understand about it. And it's, uh, again, a future yet to come, although it's ready. This is the time when uh, Sony chose to bring Ibo back from the dead. Maybe this helps, the context helps to understand the reasons. In 2017, it was a completely different story. At that time, uh, you have uh, deep learning, you have the so-called AI revolution. All of this was running. So maybe this is what made Sony move to launch the new generation of the robot, which is uh, capable of exploiting this technological breakthroughs. So here we are again in this opportunistic uh, approach. We have the technology ready and we, we have a robot. Uh, we need to, to see how we can compose existing technology to make it useful in a robot. Does a social robot need a practical use, such as cleaning, in order to succeed? 
No, I, th I think a purely social robot will succeed at some point because this is the part which is interesting. If you have something which has a utility, which is essentially most of the use of AI now, you optimize something, you optimize uh, part of your life. In fact, that's part of the one of the most uh, complex transformation of society in that global AI-based optimization. The fact that you have useless robot, robots that just there because you care about the way they develop is, I think, something which is not changing in terms of relevance. It's a value proposition, which is maybe too early. Maybe 2000 is not, is not the right moment. Maybe 2020 is not the right moment, but 2040 will be. If you look at history of technology, you have these objects which are just waiting, waiting that the right ecosystem is there. Maybe other things need to be sold beforehand. Okay. Uh, but technologically, it's ready. In terms of value proposition, it's, I think, meaningful. It's, it's then, is it a good idea to create a startup now on this? That's another question because we don't have people completely don't have the time for waiting for society to be ready. But, uh, but I still think it's, it's a very reasonable value proposition. And uh, I think that all the other value proposition, which are trying to make some form of utility out of that are in fact, different products. They're not the same thing. The robots to help you in the hospital or the robots to actually solve a practical matter in your house, it's not the same product. It's something else. Maybe the market is ready for that, but it's something else. What we can learn from this hibernation is that there's still hope for discontinued robots. In 2020, Entity Disruption acquired what remains of Jibo and Entity Disruption is now actively promoting it again. Developing and selling a social robot requires a lot of time and effort. This usually means that the roboticists need to find investors. I have to admit that I'm unfamiliar with how investment bankers look at the development of social robots. So I talked to Robert Cheek, robotics analyst at Hyundai Motor Company. Rob, who invested in Jibo and what did these investors expect? Hype in the beginning, and then there was a follow-on by, by serious venture capital, including a lot of big companies from East Asia like Docomo, or rather KDDI, LGU Plus, Dentsu Ventures. Honestly, I, I think at the time that this was going on, there was, it was really a fear of missing out kind of phenomena. There, I think they were driven, you know, there was a lot of hype behind what was happening. And basically they probably just didn't want to be the one uh, VC that didn't put money into something if it, if it became phenomenally successful. So I think one, they wanted to be on the front line of something that may be the next big thing. And I think two, they're obviously they, sorry, my cat, one moment, please. Sorry about that. And two, the, yeah, obviously they wanted to make a, a massive return on their money. I think that, what did these investors learn from Jibo and what does this mean for future social robots? From the beginning with Jibo, even though it did have a, an impressive team behind it and, and a slick marketing campaign, I was issuing warnings about putting money into this to our clients 
And but coming back to your question, I think what a lot of investors have learned, whether they're corporate venture or or venture capital or different types of investors, robotics. Well, I guess like any any business, there's a lot of hype in it. There are a lot of, and, and we all know this coming from the community. There's we need to manage expectations, and we need to learn, you know, what value does that technology provide to customers? Um, how are we going to make money on this? And this is very simple. Ultimately, Jibo took pictures and monitored, and it and it spoke with humans. So you really didn't need anything that required actuators. You can do that with a ninety-nine dollar smart speaker. So for the future of social robots, I think, and I'll come to that in a little more detail later. I think that we need to redefine. And I've, I've said this many times: the word "social robots." It is important. It will grow more important, but not in the form that many people in the field take it. Many people in the field look at social robot and they think of Jibo. They think of an, an Ibo or, or something like this. The the core research, the core technologies, the ideas. They will have to be imbued into other applications, and、uh, yeah, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But so there is a future, but not in that form. <laughs> Do you think that Sony's Eyeball is a financial success? Absolutely not. But having said that, I think it's a great robot. I think it's fantastic. Part of, and this is my view, part of the reason why Sony's doing this. When they killed the, the first Eyeball some ten years ago, or That was viewed by the market as a harbinger of, of dark days ahead for Sony, because what that signaled to the market was they're not innovating. They they don't have. There's something going on internally. And then if you look at Sony's performance from the time they killed Jibo, not Jibo, I'm sorry, Eibel, the the stock was just in the doldrums for years. And then recently, when they revived it just a couple of years ago, Sony didn't. Unlike many social robotics endeavors, they didn't bet the farm on it. In, in many ways, it was kind of a market. It's kind of a marketing spend, and also R and D, of course. It is a smart spend now for Sony because, well, honestly, Sony is making money, and they need to be seen as innovative. And these types of projects are important for companies like this. There's a bit of a rumor that maybe the Peppa robot from SoftBank Robotics. Has also been predominantly a marketing tool, so that SoftBank could place these robots in their shops in Japan and sell more phones. Would you see that as a plausible explanation for the existence of Pepper? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think、um, there are others in the, the robotics industry who share my view. Pepper, as your, the subscriptions have just fallen off a cliff, simply because those customers who did jump on board the The hype train in the beginning realized, okay, what, ultimately, what does this robot do for my company, for my business? However, having said that, SoftBank did learn quite a bit、um, by, you know, dipping their toe into the waters with Pepper, and we see this with their investments in, in organizations like Brain Corporation, which is doing work in robotization, which is very interesting. They have their Wiz. Cleaning robot, which is、uh, robot as a service. I think a lot of the the social functions are the data they've learned from their social robots. They will use in these practical money making robots that serve an immediate 
uh, need for customers. There are still many robotic development companies that are looking for funding. What do you recommend these companies to do to attract investors? It would be wise for them to work with people who know the investment side and robotics. They need to start with a map, a clear map of this may be a really cool technology. It's a really cool robot. I like it. It's neat. How am I going to make money? Because ultimately, when you're talking to investors, this is ultimately what they're thinking. So what? So how am I going to make money? How is this going to disrupt this industry? How are we going to dominate this market? I think it's important for these companies to work with persons who are familiar with that side of the equation and so that they can develop a, a clearer map of how and message of how they're going to bring their robots or their robotics technologies to the market. And they should do that in the beginning or early on rather than as an afterthought. So if, if need be, early they can make a pivot. How much money is necessary to develop a successful social robot and bring it to the market? What we do see is it doesn't take 20, 50, 100 million dollars like we've seen with some of these spectacular burn, crash and burns over the past few years. The bootstrapping is still real. You can still build robots, your prototypes that aren't necessarily super polished. You can have a clear business case. So it's hard to peg a number onto that. But there are lots of possibilities. There's a wide range. I would say it's a tough question to answer because there's a lot of variables, but a few hundred thousand, I think, is something that would, you can do. You can pull off with the right team, creative, hardworking. I think that's something you could do with a few hundred thousand dollars. While industrial robots have been successful for many years, the same cannot be said for universally usable robots that were targeted at non-expert users. Baxter from Rethink Robotics and PR2 from Willow Garage were supposed to be usable and programmable by non-experts. Both of them have been discontinued. While both have been popular in many research labs, they apparently fail to attract enough customers. Robots that are targeted at consumers' home environments are constrained to functions that can be accomplished by today's autonomous systems, such as floor cleaning. In the absence of other functions that a robot could fulfill at home, the only remaining application area is entertainment. But how long is a robot fun? How long are you entertained by its handful of party tricks? For some users, however, this might be less of a problem. People struggling with the loss of short-term memory, such as through dementia, might, however, not mind. I was teaching some elderly people, this is four or five years ago, and I was pitching this same story to them a senior education class, and one guy, he was like in his 80s or something like that, and I was just trying to get some, really some requirements from them, some input about what robots would have to do, and he piped up and said, listen, 
All you got to do is, uh, and he was serious, all you got to do is program the robot to do for something like this. Every two minutes, just ask the question, tell me again about that trip to Ohio. And that would do it. But this is, of course, the wrong process. Now we have a solution that is looking for a problem. The problem for robots of how to engage with users long term remains. As for Jibo, the future does seem again to be perfect. All stars are aligned. NTT is one of the largest Japanese telecommunication companies with a substantial financial backbone. Their disruption subsidiary has offices around the globe and uses all the right buzzwords. Disruption, change for the good, immersive experience maker. They even have a manifesto. I'm not kidding, and I could not possibly deprive you of this delightful marketing gem. <sighs> okay, let's roll the clip. Are you ready? Limits. What a word. To you, there's no till where, no till here. Impossible. Unthinkable. Crazy thing. All those words you deal with every day. They don't annoy you. They inspire you. They don't shut you in. They set you free. Listen, you need limits to be who you are, to disrupt, to create, to invent. You, the old rules breaker. You, the new rules ruler. I'm sorry. I cannot take it. Too many buzzwords. I need a pause. <sighs> okay, let's go again. You don't live in the real world, some may say. They just ignore this world of theirs is changing. And thanks to people like you, like us, like her, change is happening for good. We, the people who see things differently, those who say no to no. You are just a few, some may say. Yes, we are. But those few will create today what really matters for tomorrow. What is there to add? Don't be a Jibo. No, seriously. Will Jibo be reduced again to another marketing hype? I reached out to Entity Disruption for an interview. Your company made a manifesto video. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. And what is your view of this manifesto video? Do you agree to what is being stated in it? It's a manifesto. It's uh, yeah, really inspirational. I mean, uh, or aspirational more more than inspirational of both things at the same time. No, so it's yeah, it's a, a kind of where uh, yeah, the ideal vision of of the, the where the the company wants to be. I'm Tomas Concha and I'm, I'm uh, leading the Jibo initiative inside Entity Disruption. Why do you think Jibo failed in the market? As I said, a combination of factors. One of them could be a bit over-promising. When they launched this campaign, they were promising a lot of features that it is really difficult to get into there. The other important factor, at least from my point of view, is that they were targeting the end customer market, which is really wide in scope. And they failed a bit in covering all the aspects. When you are targeting this end customer market, the number of challenges that you have are really huge. You need to solve things like giving the weather or the news report or whatever, any other thing. 
but at the same time you want that the robot is uh, perfect for your kids and at the same time you want that the, it's able to make a reservation at the restaurant it's really really uh, wide in scope so i think that was also another factor of failing no the market and the technology were not so mature as maybe nowadays are and now you you have a more mature technology for a natural language understanding recognition and also for vision for a lot of things you can then have better tools now and why did entity disruption purchase jibo and we indeed had uh, some people working and directly inside even jibo inc no with their teams no we knew a lot of the products uh, features and possibilities And we really think and thought at that time that the, it, the product itself uh, has a high potential. No, That was the main reason, No, having a, a good knowledge of the product and recognizing that it has a good value. So we think that by shifting or changing some approaches in the strategy, I think uh, we will be able to make it happen this time. And how are you going to improve Jibo? We are shifting the approach, jumping from the pure B2C, I mean, a final customer world, to a more enterprise-oriented, so a more B2B world. And I think that will help us, on one hand, to narrow the scope and be fully focused on the specific uh, enterprise challenges that some companies like hospitals, like health insurances, like education, I mean, that they have. So not being too wide in scope. So that's the first important change that we are doing. The other important thing that we are doing as well, or we have already released alpha version, is we are now working in having a digital version of Jibo because we believe that Jibo could be a companion for people having these use cases. And sometimes you cannot always have this physical robot with yourself. We believe that in many use cases, it makes totally sense to have the same kind of persona, but embedded in a mobile device. Of course, the engagement is not exactly the same with a physical robot compared with a digital version, but we believe that this is also very important for the future as well. But this means that you are competing in a way directly with something like Siri. We want to position ourselves in a slightly different way of Siri or Alexa. No, I think for us, we consider that those are more transactional AI and we want to have something more relational AI because of the features that Nendivo has as a product, uh, this proactivity that has the liveliness, the form factor that has how friendly he is. We believe that the engagement that you can have with Jibo has nothing to do with the engagement that you can have with Siri or with an Alexa. That's where we see our differential aspect. Other important changes is regards to technology. We have partnered in a strong partnership with Microsoft. We are embedding a lot of powerful technologies that they currently have to enhance all the aspects that we have in the road, jumping from language understanding to face recognition, computer vision, and so on and so forth. We are shifting, as I said, from B2C to B2B. So we need to enhance some features that are 
more linked with the, the B2B world. So uh, things like having a multi-language, we want to target not only the English market, but also uh, Spanish or Japanese. Uh, we are a, a Japanese company, so our client based uh, in Japan is really huge, even further languages as well. No? Another significant factor is in a B2B market is everything related with compliance and security. You have a, a robot that is capable of listening to you and have cameras so it can record images. So you need to trust and rely that whatever happens into Jivo will stay in, in Jivo. On top of that, we are also adding new features as, as well that we believe are very good for this new market that we are targeting, it's like Bluetooth compatibility for being able to connect to Bluetooth devices, video conference. Cynthia was originally making the point that they could not offer all the functionality that Jibo was potentially capable of. And they were hoping on and building on a developer community that would grow around Jibo and provide all these extra functions. And if we look at Alexa and others, this worked. So there are a lot of developers who create functions for a platform like Alexa. But then Alexa has got already millions of devices out there so it is an attractive market. Now, I hear you say that you are trying to also add new functionality, but you are only one developer. How can you compete against a whole community of developers? We are currently also enhancing the tools that were already existing for having kind of an app store where new developers can develop new things and use the core product. So a similar approach to the one that you are describing. So is there any hope for researchers or enthusiasts in the future to purchase a new Jibo? Hey, we will be starting offering this service to the other companies of the entity group and also some other companies as well. Who knows? I mean, maybe in the future we will expand also this possibility to the whole community. Potentially it could be also expanded to other researchers. Why not? But again, you need to have a critical mass. So if I'm a developer and I, let's say, have a choice between developing for a platform that has millions of users that could potentially purchase my development, or I have only 10 or 20 users, uh, then of course it's going to be much more attractive to be on a more general platform. Initially, we, will, we are not focusing on having Jibo as a consumer product and having millions and millions of users in that sense. I mean, for the time being, we are focusing on the B2B market. And uh, for the B2B market, there are no many companies that are focused on that uh, market. So it's not a, as a wide community as it could be uh, when you are standing for the consumer market, but it has also a good potential in that sense. The Jibu company made a great effort and failed completely. How would the situation be different for NTT disruption? This is resuscitating a, a failed, a high profile fail of a product that is essentially the butt of many jokes. The end of IBO was different. It wasn't greeted with sneers and I told you so. The end of IBO was, okay, that we're at the end of an era. What's going on? Sony stopped. They had this really interesting R&D going on in robotics that really no consumer electronics company was doing. 
I think it's a different case between these two. This, this is like grasping at straws when I look at it. But maybe they are not actually interested in solving the problem. The whole company does appear to be one big marketing campaign for the traditional Japanese telecommunications company. Entity Disruption is planning to slightly upgrade the software of Jibo to the current market standard. Thomas even mentioned some incremental hardware upgrades. This comes at a time when Amazon has its animated digital assistant, the Echo Show 10, already in the market for only 250 US dollars. The Echo Show 10 screen follows you around, just like Jibo did, has cameras and speakers, just like Jibo did, and a powerful developer community to support it, which Jibo did not have. Entity Disruption does have plans for a Jibo app store, but since Jibo will be limited to entities' companies in the first instance, it is unlikely that they will reach the critical mass of developers. But most of all, it seems that Entity Disruption itself does not believe in its own robot. They are also developing a screen-based agent. This technology is right where Siri, Cortana or Alexa is already working for years. Whatever the goal of Entity Disruption is, it is certainly not going to disrupt the market for social robots. And what is very difficult is that companies should not trust neither the, the interest of the journalists in that respect, because they want stories, nor really the marketing themselves, because they're not necessarily aware about that future trap. And so there's a big, big thing at stake in making the most futuristic innovation as normal as it should be to be directly sold in your nearby shop or on internet, but as a normal piece of technology, like the microwave stuff that you buy, or like, I mean, something that should make it to the home. That's, I think, the key. You need to have robots which do not look like an object coming from the future and you should resist in having all the interest of people that want the object coming from the future to tell a nice story, to say science fiction is here, be ready. No, no, no. That's the way not to sell. The moment where something stops being associated with the future but is associated with the present is the key moment. And it's so hard for robots not to be associated with the future. It's, that's paradoxical, but I think it's a death sentence. If you have in an article, this is the future, it's coming, that means you never got it. I mentioned the first textbook on human-robot interaction in the introduction. While many researchers are enthusiastic about this topic and the book, I do worry about its usefulness for the education of students. If social robots are doomed to fail in the market from the get-go, what chances would students have to find a job in the area of human-robot interaction outside of research labs? Did we create another ivory tower? Does it look anything like the robot building in Bangkok? Will our human-robot interaction work improve our world? Certainly not before robots would become a commodity. But when is that? When will social robots become useful enough to justify their existence? A social robot that is nothing but a smartphone on wheels can only hope to be displayed in a museum. The road to robot hell is paved with good intentions.